Hello again, and welcome back to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, John Latiri. This week, I sit down with Jim Tankersley, a tax and economics reporter for The New York Times, and the author of a new book entitled The Riches of This Land, which tells the story of how America's middle class was built and what it will take to rebuild it after the current crisis. We also discuss what it's like to be a reporter in the midst of the worst economic crisis in a century, and how COVID-19 has added new wrinkles to the process of reporting on the lives and fortunes of everyday Americans. I really enjoyed the discussion and hope you will too. So with that, here's Jim Tankersley. Jim Tankersley, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, John. My pleasure. So I ask everybody to start with how they got into their profession and tell a little bit about your background before we dive in. It's a great story, classic story of a, a kid in a small town. If you want to start at the very beginning, when I was in middle school, I signed up for some reason, I think because my grandfather was a journalist, signed up for the school newspaper. The very first thing I wrote was an editorial critical of the school's dress code, which at the time prohibited baseball caps, which because in my small town, small, mostly white town in Oregon, they were deathly afraid of the Crips coming in to our middle school. And so they, they had a policy banning hats because they thought that was a gateway drug to gang violence. So I wrote a strident editorial in opposition to this that got me hauled into the principal's office, which seemed like a lot of fun, actually. I'd never been hauled into the principal's office before. And so I got kind of the bug and then managed to get an internship from the newspaper that, that in my same small town and worked there every summer in high school. Did not think it was going to be my profession, thought I was going to go to law school, but just kept going. And in college, worked for the newspaper and, and realized kind of early on that I loved writing, but fell in love pretty quickly with reporting. Like I, I got into it because I liked writing things and I liked getting a rise out of people. But what I sort of discovered pretty early on was, I almost feel like I get to be a detective here. And I love that. I just love talking to people. I love telling their stories. I love trying to solve problems. And it seemed like a way to unify a ton of my interests into something I got paid for. And that is sort of a dream. And not initially an economics reporter, right? So how did that transition happen in your career? I started as an actually as an education reporter in the Portland suburbs for the Oregonian when I was out of college. And I did, you know, some data work for that. And I was every job's in, in some way in journalism and econ reporting job. And when you're covering school budgets, there's a lot of economics going on. The recession of 2001 hit and there are budget things. And I had to write about the economy and why that was happening. And so I was, I was interested in that. Then sort of gravitated into politics, which I really liked. If you'll permit me one quick diversion, John. Of course. When I was in college, I, took, I spent one summer in Boise, Idaho as a sports reporter. It was miserable. I was not a good fit for the paper. And I was surrounded covering minor league baseball by several kind of burnt out sports writers who did not enjoy sports. And I love sports. And I came home from that internship somewhat broken and said to my parents, I, I can't imagine life where I don't love sports anymore. I don't think I can be a sports writer. So I was like, what is a thing that I like, but don't like enough that I'll get upset if I hate it? And I was like, oh, politics. Politics is the thing that I like, but would be okay hating. And that's basically what's turned out to happen. Was your family very political at home? Was that a common topic of debate at the dinner table? There was a lot of debate, a lot of local politics debates. McMinnville, um, Oregon politics? McMinnville, Oregon politics, Oregon state politics. I have a really wide diversity of ideology in my family. And so, you know, I have cousins who are you know, we're raised in Eastern Oregon, homeschooled conservatives. Like my brother is a vegetarian art professor at a liberal arts college in, in Oregon. And so, you know, there's a real range of political views. And it was fun to hear people debate them. And, and so I liked it. And, and so I eventually got into politics at the Oregonian and then at the Rocky Mountain News in Denver, which was my next stop. And I had this sort of journalism career that doesn't exist anymore, where I just moved kind of across the country to different papers. and. And it was not until I got to Toledo, Ohio, that I realized, hey, maybe covering the economy is what I want to be doing, not just politics. So you kind of felt your way through it. And you've, as you said, you started in Oregon. You've been a reporter in Toledo, Ohio, been at several publications in D.C., Vox, The Washington Post, now The New York Times. How did you model your career? Was there a, a mentor or an example that you looked at and said, that's the kind of reporter I'm trying to be? There were a bunch. I had this professor when I was in college, Bill Wu, who had been the editor-in-chief of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and was a 
just a beautiful writer and an old school reporter. And I sort of feel like my values as a reporter grow from these long lectures that he would give us about sort of being sent back again and again and again by the city editor to make sure that he had the spelling right and that he had the name of the opera singer and the, all these different things. And But I think in terms of the types of reporter like and writer I wanted to be, I really always admired the super wizards with words, but who were telling stories that mattered to policy. And that's always been the two things that I've cared about is human storytelling and, and policy impact. And when I was at the Oregonian, a guy named Rich Reed was there and he had won the Pulitzer. He's, he now works in Seattle and he had won a Pulitzer for an explanatory series in which he explained the Asian economic crisis of the late 90s through a single batch of French fries that had gone around the world. And it was amazing, amazing reporting, amazing writing, distilled a very complex topic into a consumer friendly. And so that was the sort of thing that I thought I would like to do that on a daily basis, try to make sense of complicated things like that for people. So we're now in a once in a hundred year pandemic and economic crisis. And as you said earlier, so much of your job and what you like about your job is talking to people, being amongst people, seeing places firsthand and exploring the economy, investigating. How has the public health crisis side of things affected your ability to do your job? How, how have you had to change your, your methodology? I mean, it's hard. I like to, tr to be on the road and to meet with real people. I like to take data sets and then go places that bring them alive. And, you know, and there, there are a couple of types of, of newspaper tropes. There are people who just write extraordinarily well about data. And there are people who go out and write great feature stories. But my favorites are these ones that do both. You use the data to find the place that really illustrates the trend that matters for policy. And so I had hoped to do a bunch of those trips this year, particularly with the presidential campaign happening to help explain, you know, trends in the reshoring of American jobs and in the sort of people still left behind by the recovery. And then suddenly here comes this pandemic and that's blown everything up. And I've been sitting in a kind of stuffy back office room, like spare bedroom at my house. And while I enjoy being around my teenager every day and getting to have lunch with him and my wife, I don't get out to talk to people in person. And so I've got to reach them on the phone or over the internet. And that's just different. It's just not the same type of experience. And I worry a lot that we are missing great stories because we're just not out in the field like that as much. Yeah. So say more about that. How are, how are you prioritizing? Because there's so many potential storylines and angles to this crisis, given given its nature. How are you wading through that and deciding what to cover and whatnot? It's evolved over time. I think it's, it feels like iteration. It, it, early on, I tried really hard to sort of set big guideposts and try to just explain to people like what was happening. Like we are shutting down the economy on purpose to try to stop a virus. Here's what has to happen to bring it back. Those types of explanatory stories. And then news started flying and Congress started doing things. And so I started spending tons of time every day just responding to news demands from editors and also from you know my own sources who are calling me to say, hey, have you heard about this? Have you heard about that? And I, I sort of over time have given up trying to control my own news cycle every day. I have some stories I'm working on, some targets, but I'm much more just like, okay, I woke up on Monday morning and the Treasury Department decided to drop a huge amount of data on the Paycheck Protection Program. We spent our day, me and a, a dozen colleagues and I spent our day just cleaning data and sifting spreadsheets. And that was not how I thought the day was going to go. But the best days are the day when I'm on the phone a lot to people who are not in Washington. And I feel like I learn more from those calls, no offense, than I do from any other calls. Because they're the people who will tell me things that are just like surprising. I mean, that was the, that was, for example, the first indication I got that liability reform was going to be big was like when a business owner I was talking to just like casually mentioned that he had made known to his local chamber of commerce that they were going to need this. And then, you know, like a week later, the national chamber starts pushing it. So I think those are the best days, but it's, it's hard. I, I, I sort of wish I had more discipline and time control every day to be Talk, you know, just making a round of calls every day to people I haven't talked to before out in the country. Econ walks in DC all dream of being in the pages of the New York Times. So I'm sure you have no problem tracing them down. But is it hard to get normal people to talk to you? It has gotten harder to get certain types of people to talk to me. 
What is that? I believe that there is an, there's a long-running erosion of trust in media, and people don't want to touch reporters. They're more so being at the Times than a, lo- a lot of other places I've been. There are either people who are desperate to talk to you because you're the Times, or people who have already made up their mind that you're not going to give them a fair shake. I feel like some of those people have been burned, and rightly so, and I, I usually ask them to tell me what, what has happened to them and why, why they won't. But others just don't return your calls. And I think that's a shame. And I think it's a shame for us. I think that, that we certainly, as an industry, have work to do, have been trying to do work, are not succeeding the way we should be at earning people's trust. And I also think there is a deliberate campaign by all sorts of people, whether it's media figures or politicians or the president of the United States, to try to delegitimize media in you know, certain media outlets in the eyes of their supporters. And, and that has worked. All presidents have a somewhat antagonistic relationship with the press. There's certainly nobody in my lifetime, I think your lifetime too, that's had a as antagonistic and overtly a confrontational relationship with, with the press as President Trump. And New York Times gets singled out for special criticism. And on the other side, I think there's, in my view, at least a legitimate concern that a lot of the line between journalism and activism seems more blurry now than it did in the past. What kind of challenges has that presented you? I mean, you mentioned one of them of getting people to trust you enough to open up and have a conversation, but how self-conscious are you about that as you're writing stories, that those conceptions of journalism out there in the world, and how much do you check yourself against that as you're writing a story or sourcing a story or thinking through how you're going to construct a narrative? Has that changed much for you in terms of your internal process over the last few years? I used to say that what I was trying to do with every story was write something that would speak to the experience of or ring true to basically any the broadest possible spectrum of potential readers out there. And I still hope that that's true. But sometimes you're going to write stories that piss people off. And I'm okay with that. I, I, I think it's the right thing to do. You have to have sort of your own moral compass. I will give you a counterintuitive example of that, which was uh, actually the only time the president has said anything about me personally was praise for a piece that a colleague and I did about the 2017 tax cuts. This is your piece with Ben Castleman, right? Yes, with Ben. And we wrote, hey, you probably got a tax cut. Like we just, we looked at, you know, we went through the numbers and told our readers they very likely got a tax cut. We all, we did get angry emails from literally every American who did not get a tax cut. But the president like liked that story so much that he stood up and said that he was surprised that Ben and I had not been fired for writing that in the pages of the New York Times before he conceded he hadn't actually read the story, just the headline. <laughs> but, you know, I actually think the antagonism from the administration, I worry about the safety of reporters out in the field in many cases who, who have been subjected to, to violence or threats of violence, I mean. I have to say that I have no more of an antagonistic relationship with my sources in this administration than my sources in the last one, the one before that. In fact, I definitely got called more often by Obama administration spokespeople and yelled at over coverage. And I think it's because they expected the mainstream media to cover them more favorably than the Trump people do. You know, and whether I was at the Chicago Tribune or the Washington Post, the two big places where they would call and yell at me. That was an interesting experience to me. And I, and I think, so I guess to actually answer your question about how the things have changed, what's changed is I am more conscious of that safety concern, that there, there are colleagues of mine getting threats every day. And I, and I really do worry about that. And the other big thing is that I, I am just really aware of the sort of tidal pull of the internet and traffic on, it's very easy for reporters to just write to what gets them clicks and is popular and like follow their internal incentives. And I think that's a real danger. If your audience is sort of segmenting itself ideologically, you have a real danger of, of only just writing stories that speak to their experience, whether it's like, whether they want to hear it or they agree with it or not, you can just end up in a frame where you write way more about the salt deduction than you do about, you know, the child tax credit. and. One of those is a, a niche issue that affects New York Times readers a great deal, and me personally, people who live in the Washington, D.C. area. But the other one is something that's like a, you know, arguably a much bigger policy and more important policy debate for fundamental issues like poverty. And 
there's no person at the New York Times who says you should write more about this and less about this. But it's true. You look at the Travis statistics, like salt stories do very well because they speak to our readers. So that I think is the big thing you you have to do. You have to you want to write stories people will read, but you also want to write important stories, even if you are, are certain that it is not like guaranteed fodder for your audience. And many times those stories will surprise you and also be quite popular. But it's okay if they're not, because it's your job to be writing, you know, the important stuff that follows that, you know, those fundamental values that we have as journalists. Maybe we'll have time at the end to circle back a little bit more on the profession. I just think it's it's interesting to think through the mechanics of how one does their job in this this kind of environment. And speaking of the environment, since you're talking to people all the time about the state of the economy, the nature of the crisis, I think in our conversations, you and I are both relatively high on the on the pessimism and, and concern meter about the state of things. How would you grade the nature of the response so far and just where we are? I mean, if you can remember back to three months ago, are we doing better than you thought we would do? Or are we, has the response been more or less effective than you thought it would be? How would you grade it so far? I mean, I would say a few things. One, that I think that the amount of fiscal response that Congress passed in March surprised almost everyone who has been governing economics for a long time, Absolutely. particularly those of us who who sort of went through the austerity wars of the recovery from the Great Recession. And that, I think, reflected both some learning from that experience, the absolute insanity of this crisis and the swiftness in which it came on, and also just a fundamental shift with a Republican in the White House about deficit spending. And that that was, I think, foreseeable, but but surprising to to most of us who who covered it. I am not at all surprised about what has happened since then. I think that people were anxious to get back out in the economy again, and especially when they were being told by a lot of governors that, like, hey, we're taking restrictions off, it's okay. They went out. But my my guiding principle, which which I have been hearing from a lot of smart people from all across the spectrum throughout this crisis is like the virus is what's going to dictate the pace of the recovery. And people feel confident they're going to go out. And if they don't feel confident, they're not going to spend money to the degree that we would need them to to return to normal economically. And there was a good trajectory for a while, but I but there was a lot of ball spiking about a V-shaped recovery that happened in May that seemed very early to me. And then once cases started surging, I think what's happened since then is absolutely foreseeable. You know, activity, all the real-time indicators right now of activity are trending back down. Before I hopped on with you to take this, I was talking to a business owner, representative for a business who was talking about, you know, they had had some hopes about the fall and those are all gone. And I think that is, you know, that's, we'll see now what happens in the next round of the, of the federal response. And that I think actually is something that I truly, it could go any number of ways and I would not be surprised, but I don't have a base case for what I think is going to happen. Is the level of optimism or pessimism that you get from people in DC, from policymakers and officials in DC, is it consistent with what you hear from people out in the country more broadly, business owners, individuals who are on the receiving end of, of the effects and the relief efforts? Or is there a big disconnect there? I have yet to talk to a business person who's like, hey, this is all going to be great really soon. I've talked to a few workers who have hopes of that, but our polling suggests people are really... I mean, it's really it's really weird to, to look at economic polling right now because it is so much just a proxy for the president. But the degree to which it has, you know, optimism has collapsed among the people for whom optimism had surged when he was elected is really worrisome. And the other thing is just, it's super clear that the most vulnerable people in the economy are the ones being hurt the most by, by this, either because they've been thrown out of work or because they are being forced to work on the front lines in jobs where they are coming into contact every day with the risk of contracting the virus. And those people are disproportionately black and disproportionately Latino and disproportionately women in a lot of cases and very much disproportionately low income. And so sort of a story that we can't tell enough, I think, is that their outlook is not like, oh, yeah, everything's going to be great. The record setting Q3 GDP number is going to be awesome for me. 
It's, it's more, I don't know what I'm going to do. And a lot of people talk to me about making hard choices. And like a lot of those people, not surprisingly, are choosing to put themselves at risk in order to keep food on the table for their family. Hmm. I want to talk, you wrote a book. It's called The Riches of This Land. It's fantastic. So I, I, I've had the pleasure of reading an early copy and I really want to dig into the themes that you cover and some of the issues that are very germane to what we've been talking about now in terms of vulnerable people and places and, and what we do about it. So the book is called The Riches of This Land. Let's start with where you got the title. So the title comes from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. I'm Episcopalian, and growing up in every pew in an Episcopal church, there's a hymnal and there's a prayer book. And the prayer book sort of sets the order of the services. And it's if you go to an evangelical Christian church or a variety of less liturgical churches, you don't have this structure. But if you're Catholic or Episcopalian or a few other Protestant denominations, you basically read along for everything. And, and the book is sort of a treasure trove of just really fascinating poetry. It has all these prayers at the back, and I, I got one for my on the occasion of my confirmation when I was 12, I believe. I was gifted by my godmother a, a prayer book, which I still have and carry around and, and, and read a lot. And when thinking about the book and what I wanted to call it, I was thinking a lot about that sort of the values I had learned growing up in my church community about the dignity of all people. And I went back to the prayer book and just pulled a few of my favorites. And one of those is called the prayer for the oppressed. And it concludes with, you know, a prayer for all people to get their fair share of the riches of this land. I was going through and pulling little phrases out for possible, possible use in the book. And, and I read that one to my wife and she was like, that's it. That's the title. So she, she was right. It was a great, it's a great title and it, it fits the themes of the book perfectly. Why did you want to write this book? What were you hoping to accomplish? I, you know, this book is, is either like a, like three years or like 15 or like my entire life in the making, depending on how you look at it. I originally got the contract to write the book because I have, I have been consumed by questions about the middle class in my entire decade as an economics reporter. And the original idea was let's write a book about how the middle class has fared under Donald Trump. That's in this book. There is a lot of that in this book. But in the more that I pushed on that idea, the more I kept going back to my original animating reason for writing about the middle class, which was, you know, I went to this rural Oregon high school in a town that used to do a lot of logging. And in the 80s, when I was a kid, I sort of watched the timber industry fall flat out from underneath you know, a bunch of guys who I went to high school with who would have graduated high school and walked straight into the woods basically for a job or gone to the mill and had a pretty good paying job. Like their dads had good paying jobs. And there was just nothing for those guys. And a lot of them just got cut out. You know, the economy changed and they didn't go to college. And and so I've been sort of long obsessed with this question of like, what's going to happen? How do we get the economy working again for these guys I went to high school with? And in the course of my reporting, and this is where I think I realized that I had a bigger story to tell than just Trump, you know, I, I realized that the, the story of the middle class is much bigger than the guys I went to high school with, and that they have a lot more in common with a lot of other workers who have been left behind than we all realized growing up in a small, largely white town. And the sort of thing that Donald Trump did really effectively was appeal to one of those groups of distressed workers. But the more and more that his presidency went on, the more I was frustrated with us in the media for not having written about and not continuing to write about the struggles of other workers, the ones who had not delivered Trump to the White House, black workers and Hispanic workers and, and women, and I sort of ended up deciding, making the conscious choice that the book needed to go bigger and try to tell a much bigger picture story about where prosperity and the middle class come from in America and how Trump sort of fits into that story and, and how sort of that story points us toward a better future. I want to pick up on that by reading a quote from the prologue, which really struck me. You said, politicians and business leaders and other powerful men have peddled an incomplete origin story for the middle class, one that put white men at the center and shoved the real heroes to the side. Those omissions have changed economic policymaking for the worse. Now, explain what you meant by that. Sure. I mean, I, I think in America, for the duration of America, the people who have made decisions 
the vast, vast majority of them have been white men and not just white men, but sort of elite white men call that landholding white men back in the founding. Now you can call that like elite white men who went to college, basically. But they have largely dictated the terms of of how we talk about the economy and the way that we talked about, you know, we have this origin story of the American middle class, which does not date to the founders. It dates to World War II. It is the story of the great post-war boom and the middle class growing. And it's like, it's a leave it to beaver story, to be super honest. And the story we've been told is about Ward Cleaver and, you know, the American middle class that comes up in the suburbs. That's white people. I mean, it's wrong. I mean, this book is like grounded in empirical research. It's, it's, I'm making arguments, I guess, but it's mostly I'm trying to explain what the data and very smart economists have shown me. And what the data show are that the reason the American economy surged after World War II and millions of people and families were pulled into the middle class was because the economy started opening long closed doors of opportunity to women and to black men and to other non-white workers and to immigrants. And that those workers' contributions are truly what made us special and different and what made that economy so transcendent. And, you know, that's not a story I've took a lot of economics classes at, you know, at Stanford, and I, I did a lot of history in, in school, and that's not a story I had ever heard. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it's convenient to tell a story that puts white men in the center of the, of the middle class, the factory workers and the, you know, rocketeers who, who did everything right and played by the rules and who have been screwed by the economy since then, but you just miss everybody else. So it's a failure of omission. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's a, sometimes it's more than a failure of omission. I mean, there, there are definitely stories that seek to pit different groups of workers against each other when they are clearly allies. I write in the book about labor unrest at a tobacco plant in, in Winston-Salem. It's, this is the first chapter. Basically, black women at the plant rose up, went on strike against horrible conditions, and they won pay raises for everybody. And what the men who ran the plant did was respond to that by breaking the union, by bringing in white, you know, poor white guys from rural areas surrounding the city and dividing the workers against each other, inflaming racial tensions as a way to distract from worker empowerment. I think we've seen a lot of that over the course of American history. This is the story of Theodosius Simpson. It's a really great and arresting start to a book. The story is almost, I think you even say in the chapter, it's almost like a biblical parable of some type, the, the way that this whole thing plays out. And it's in a city that I know and love really well, Winston-Salem, where, where I went to school. Why did you choose to start a book about the middle class there and then. This is a very particular story in a very particular place in a very particular time in American history. Why, why was that the anecdote or the, what was being captured about the American middle class and the story you wanted to tell through that particular story? I mean, I was trying to think because I am, because every journalist truly actually thinks that she or he is a screenwriter. I was trying to think about it like, you know, like the prologue scene in a movie or like the first scene that sets everything up, you know, whether it's Krypton blowing up or whatever, like you want the scene that foreshadows everything to come. And I was looking for that. And these wonderful researchers, Robert Korstadt and a bunch of folks in an oral history of project in North Carolina had done all of these interviews with workers from tobacco plants in North Carolina in the 20s. And I, I can't actually remember the first thing that turned me on to them. But I spent a couple days just reading the transcripts. And I realized pretty quickly, like, this is it. This is a story. This is because the story of the book is a story of empowerment for disadvantaged groups, leading to prosper more prosperity for everyone. And here it was. Here was a story of black women who worked in such horrible conditions. In, I mean, it was both the worst, con worst conditions that any worker works in in America today that you, you know, that you know, but also way better than any other job available to black women at the time. And they were stripping the stems of tobacco leaf and feeding it into machines and did not get breaks other than to go to the bathroom and did not, you know, didn't get time off even to have a baby. I mean, like literally the day to deliver the baby. And they went on strike. They stood up and stopped working and they brought the factory to a complete halt. And they used that leverage to earn better pay. And it didn't stick, really. I mean, it, those, those gains were small and it did not like unleash some like torrent because this is early in the story. It's, it's during World War II. And only later, 
but it's it's a prelude. It's a prelude to everything that comes and the sort of great opening of doors. So I wanted to both show in that first chapter just just how restricted so many Americans have been for so long and what they were allowed to do in the economy, like how they were allowed to use their talents, and also show the power for everyone of unleashing just a little bit more of their talent, a little bit more. That really, I want to take us back to the thesis of the book because, and I'll paraphrase what I what I took away from it. It's the, the idea that the middle class is in retreat and under threat, but it's a fundamentally hopeful and optimistic thesis as well. That the same things that led to that explosion of prosperity earlier in the 20th century are the path to doing it again. We just have to get back to a broader participation, a broader enfranchisement of people as stakeholders in the economy and and to unleash the, the latent potential that we've we've kept locked up. Is that a fair thesis? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I think it's, I'm an optimistic person who is just constantly pessimistic about the economy, but I am very optimistic about this. I am optimistic about America, but I'm also very clear-eyed about what I'm suggesting here. I'm basically saying we have this one neat trick that will fix the middle class, and it's ending systemic racism and sexism. Easy, right? Really, no really problem. Easy. That's all we got to do. But I actually think that forcing people to take a look at that and say, okay, all we have to do is climb this mountain. And it's incredibly hard. But we know it's there. And we've done it before. And we don't have to do the whole thing. But the more we, the farther we get up the mountain, and the more we are able to extend the true opportunities of America, true investments in, in, the, in the potential of everyone. It is not a zero-sum game. It is the opposite. Investing in each other raises people up. My son jokes that I, when I talk about this, I sound like a politician or like a trial lawyer trying to get you to sign up for my, my lawsuit against a, a cancer drug. But I really do believe that it's something people can get behind. And it actually is quite intuitive if you just think about it a little bit. You want the very best players on your team and you want them to play the positions that they're best at. And it's crazy to think that we, for a country, for our entire existence, have spent so much time trying to keep people out of doing what they're best at. I want to push on the, the first part of the premise, the first part of the thesis, which is that the middle class is under threat and that we've seen a squeezing or a retreating of middle class prosperity. You, you know better than I do and better than most people how contentious that claim is in economic circles. And there are people that you cite in the book that are pushed back very strongly on the idea that there's been uh, a reversal of fortune yeah. for the middle class. So what convinced you that that part of the problem was real? What are you staking your claim on here? Well, data. I mean, I, a lot of data. But for, first off, I would say it's not actually a contentious claim in places in the country that are not filled with think tanks. If you talk to regular people around the country, there's a broad sense that the economy is not working the way that it should be for them. And I think actually that disconnect, while well, a bit trite for me to just say, yeah, people... The eggheads in Washington don't get it. I think there is a disconnect that is truly important and that actually, even if you look at, you know, I am friends with a lot of people who are critical of this idea that the middle class is in trouble and debate this with them all the time. And even if you look at their work and their, their best case using the numbers that they have put together for why the middle class is doing pretty well, none of them disprove what I'm about to tell you, which is that the middle class is not growing and delivering for Americans relative to what they expect it to have done because of how it did it in the past. So you can, your only way, you can argue that the middle class is doing awesome right now, pre-pandemic, obviously, but the middle class was doing awesome, is to say the 50s, 60s, and early 70s were an outlier that we shouldn't expect to be a case again. And that, John, I would argue, is not the sort of optimism that the American people have built themselves on. Like we expect things to get better. We expect technology to improve. We expect our incomes to grow up and we expect to be able to pass on a better standard of living to our children than the one that we enjoyed. And I think those are fantastic expectations to have. But if you look at the data, it is clear. And this is my favorite stat. And it is, even if you just look at the, from the, the period from, from 2000 to 2018, so before, before the trade war and the pandemic hit, and you look at the income gains for Americans, which accelerated at the end of that period, they are still nowhere close to the rate of income gains 
that people experienced in the late 1990s, the last actually good period for the American middle class, to such a point that if we had had the growth of the late 90s in incomes for middle class Americans, they would earn 50% more today than what they actually experienced, which is a lot. That is, that is the difference between a median household income of in six, around $60,000 a year to $90,000 a year. And I think most people would argue that is a huge and meaningful difference. And of course, the last point is we'd be having a different conversation if the American economy had not been growing robustly in this time, but it has been. And no matter how you look at inequality statistics, it is unarguable that we have seen income growth for the richest and wealthiest Americans that has outstripped the growth in the middle. And people don't think the American economy should work that way. I think that's right. I think where I struggle, because you know that I, I should say, I agree with a lot of the, the thesis here. And I, and I also disagree with the idea that we should taper expectations and just accept that there was an, this super anomalous period of middle class growth and prosperity that we shouldn't be baselining against now. I, I think we should continue to aim high. If you look at polling just before the pandemic hits, it does register record high optimism about the economy, record high confidence in personal finance, record high belief in the quality of the job market, the ability to go out and get a good job. So at least by the tail end of the expansion, don't you feel like by that point, I think everyone could agree it took too long to get there. I mean, this was a record economic expansion and only at the tail end did you really start to see this pretty sizable uptick which as you said, still doesn't match what we saw at the tail end of the, the 90s expansion. But I think what I struggle with is if the case was as dire as many people say it is for the middle class, I would expect to see more of that in the polling than we did. How, how do you respond to that? Well, a couple of ways. One is that, I mean, we still, it's weird to say we had a couple of really happy years out of 20, and we should consider that everything is fine. I think in baseball, we would consider that a batting average that gets you sent down to, to double A. But I think more than that, we actually have to uh, like sort of understand how we got to that point in the last two years. We had sort of, again, a fascinating confluence of things that if you really believe what happened in 2017 and 2018 was just the economy finally kicked back into its normal gear and was delivering this prosperity for middle class Americans, I think you have a better argument than what I think actually happened. And the evidence is pretty clear on, which is we did a ton of fiscal and monetary stimulus at a time of relatively low unemployment. And that very rarely happens. And when it does, it usually is very good for workers. But politically, it's not feasible and sustainable to do that for long stretches of time. And so it's like saying, look, we all had pixie sticks for dinner and we're, everybody's full. So what are we complaining about, about going hungry? Even before the pandemic, I thought the likelihood was high that growth was going to slip, which of course it did in 2019. And by a lot of metrics, things don't look as good. They do not support the idea that the economy had been fundamentally changed in any way. They support the idea that there was a sugar high of stimulus that was going to have to wear off at some point politically unless Washington fundamentally changed its view of budget deficits and adopted modern monetary theory. or someone found some big productivity gains in the midst of all that, which is kind of the argument that I'm making about productivity. I want to switch to talking about one of the main characters, if you could call it that, of your, of your book. Tell us about Ed Green. So I met Ed Green as a reporter for the Washington Post in, I think the first time I met him was in 2013. And I'll just say for, for your listeners who, who haven't heard the book, the, the book is this mixture of a little bit of personal storytelling, a lot of sort of human storytelling, and a lot of just economic explanation based off research. And so when I met Ed, I was doing a, a series of stories for the Post that were sort of a precursor to this book and wanted to write about someone who was experiencing a particular phenomenon in America right now, which is that people have had to work harder to tread water, which is another thing that your friends in the middle classes doing fine camp never really seem to point out, which is that all the income gains over the last several decades can basically be attributed to more hours worked. And again, I mean, I think that's good. People work harder, they get more income in a very American way. But let's not confuse that for the economy is just delivering better and better. So Ed, though, Ed was like a true outlier example. I've never met anyone like Ed. I doubt I ever will. When I met him, it was at a baseball stadium uh, in Winston-Salem. 
uh, which is another reason why I started the book in Winston-Salem, because it turns out that that, that is, is the main character and, and we spent a lot of time with him. But Ed was a janitor for, for the Winston-Salem Dash minor league baseball team. And he, you know, swept Pepsi off the, the concourse and emptied the trash. He's this tall, soft-spoken, phenomenal, thoughtful man who got up every day, worked on a highway crew for the state of North Carolina, and then worked a second job at night, either at the Dash or during the winter at the Wake Forest basketball or, or football events. And he was working somewhere between 60 and 80 hours a week, every week, just to earn a middle-class job because he had moved back to North Carolina. His mom got sick. He had been in New York driving a bus, making a middle-class wage. But then now he had to work two jobs just to keep himself in the middle class and send his kids to college so that they could hopefully have a middle class life. And that's the story that, that Ed helped me tell in that first series of interviews with him was just sort of how, how hard Americans are having to work to, to stay in the middle class right now. And then we just kept in touch. And over time, I revisited him and I talked to him more and I met his kids. And we started talking about a lot more of the dynamics around being black, which, which Ed is, in Winston-Salem and in the economy and raising black children in this country and living in a black neighborhood where the home values are depressed by all sorts of measures. And, you know, at every turn, he was thoughtful and generous with his time. And he turns out to be sort of this quiet moral conscience of the book because I've never heard Ed complain about anything. I've never heard him lament his the, the sheer amount of time that he works. He's just a guy with an extraordinary work ethic who loves his family and wants the country to to be better. And I, I think there's just like a lot of that in every neighborhood, in every family. Ed reminded me of the best qualities of a lot of the best people I knew. And I think that that was why telling his stories seemed like such a central, important piece of what I was trying to do. That really shines through in the book. Are people like Ed optimistic about the country? You said you didn't sense much resentment or he wasn't a complainer, but when he thinks about the future for his kids and the country, the arc of his life in the economy in this country, do you think things are getting better or worse? Ed's not a super political guy. We very rarely talked about politics, but, but I asked him this question. We were having a smoothie one day last summer when I was down there for a few days. And I asked him about sort of his optimism. And he told me this story that he's a son and, and he had named him, he'd purposely given him a name that wouldn't sound black because he, he didn't want his son to be denied an opportunity because his name sounded black. But he said he had been very, very hopeful that if his son had a son, that his son could give him whatever name he wanted. Tyrone or Abdullah or anything else, because Ed thought America was really making progress. And he's like, until Trump. And I think this is something that the, that the supporters of the president in Washington perhaps don't appreciate, is the degree to which many black workers in America I talk to feel as if the way Trump talks about black Americans, the way he has, he picks out targets and, and denigrates them, the way he appeals to, and this was back when the squad was his big thing. This is way before he was venerating Confederate statues and calling on, you know, NASCAR's only black driver to apologize for having a noose in his garage. But those things stick with black Americans that I talk to, and they see Trump fomenting a new wave of racial resentment against them. And that was making, when I last talked to Ed about it, that was making him feel more pessimistic about things. And, and I think that was sort of just a, a product of not just what the president was saying, but what he was then hearing from other people who were echoing back similar language from the president. I mean, anyone who has read your work in the New York Times, I think is going to have the same reaction that I had in reading the book, and that this is an intensely personal book in a lot of ways. You really draw upon your personal experiences, your childhood, your family, your faith, places that you love in telling the story. And the tone of the book is not balls and strikes, neutral econ reporter. I mean, this is at times almost polemical and certainly more populist in tone. 
than what we would typically read from a Jim Taggart's like byline. So was it liberating to to find a different voice or was that one of the big challenges of writing this book was having to get into a different... You know, I hadn't thought of it that way. I have always written stories with voice. I mean, I think my editors over the years would tell you that they constantly were trying to rein down my voice, which is different to say than my my point of view. Like I once snuck the word Fahrenheitedly as an adverb into a, <laughs> a, a, a weather story at the Rocky Mountain News. But I think it's true that at the Times in particular, and in a, in a bit at the Post, I was writing more sort of sober stories. But the, but the very the very first series of stories that animate this book are a series that I wrote when I was at the Toledo Blade about what had gone wrong with the Ohio economy. And they are similarly polemical. I went back and reread those stories because you mentioned them in the book. And that's right. I was actually going to draw that line because the book reminds me so much of, I mean, there's such a strong connection between maybe if you want to say voice or point of view, because you do, you, you meld, as you said earlier, you do combine the data with the personal element in your day-to-day reporting. But this is much more of a point of view and perspective-driven and personal narrative that you're, you're weaving here, which does show up in that 2006-2007 story about Ohio. I think that the binding force there, John, is like my sense of, well, I think that the nice way to put it is, is like justice and the less nice to myself way is like self-righteousness or indignation. I lived in Ohio for a year and a half. I really loved Toledo, Ohio. I really loved the town. I loved my newspaper. My son was born there. And I was pissed at what had happened to that economy. And I was pissed at the pat politician answers that everybody was getting. And I could tell that no one was buying it anymore. And it's, it's funny. I've been talking to some of the people who were you know, working on those campaigns, telling them you know, about, about the book. And I think they all got it. I mean, I think, I think every campaign understood they weren't actually delivering the things they were promising. And you know, I still have relationships with several of the politicians who I covered back then and, you know, source relationships. And for many of them, it's been like a career long fight to try to try to improve the Ohio economy. But I feel that way also about, you know, about the American middle class. And I, in particular, in, in the last decade of, of writing about this, have grown to feel that way about people who are prevented from doing their thing in the economy. And whether that's a sin of underinvestment or an actual sin of discrimination, it pisses me off. It just, it really does. And I think we have social mores that hold people back. We have institutions that hold people back. We have laws that hold people back. But Black Americans have been held back in this country from instance, I mean, from emancipation, from the moment that they were allowed to start, you know, being paid for their service in the economy widespread. They have been underinvested in. They have been unable. I mean, there's some I learned things reporting this and writing this book too. And one of them is this study that I read about from an economist who actually ended up serving in the Trump administration, Marianne Wanamaker from the University of Tennessee. And she's an economic historian. And she studied the difference in intergenerational mobility over time, the ability for men to, to do better than, than their fathers. And she studied the gap between white men and black men. And she found that like, black men had made zero progress since Reconstruction in cl- closing that gap. Zero. And she said if there had just been one generation where they had had the same amount of progress as, as white men, the, the gap would have been gone. But it never has happened. And so I think it's actually a couple of times I, I, while writing the book, I told my wife or, or, or friends of mine I was talking to about it, I feel radicalized on behalf of people who have been left behind here. And I actually don't think that's political or necessarily a point of view. I just think that is allowing the evidence to come to its natural conclusion, which is, wow, this is infuriating. This is a thing that should not happen in a country that prides itself on being the land of opportunity. And most infuriatingly, it's against our self-interest. Like again and again and again, I just kept returning to this idea that like the kids I went to high school with white men who feel left behind have been left behind in their in their way and they would do better if the economy opened new opportunities for them but also if the economy opened new opportunities for people who don't look like them and so that is 
That is the trick. And that is that is the difference I think you read in this and the sort of passion and, and voice, if you will. Yeah. I want to talk about solutions and, and some of the ways you think we can make it better. You mentioned Ohio just a minute ago. I thought that was one of the more interesting parts of, of the early portion of the book. You talk about this effort in 2006 to write about what ailed the Ohio economy and you and Josh, who's now the AP, tag team this series together. And one of your big conclusions was that fundamentally, the Ohio economy was suffering from a lack of innovation, of investment, of high-skilled brain power that was just becoming more and more essential in the modern economy. And that one of the really obvious ways to address that was to attract more highly skilled immigrants. You fast forward to 2016, and Ohio helps to swing the country's vote for the president who has been, by far, not even close, the most antagonistic national leader towards immigration of any in modern history. And so I think this highlights one of the challenges that I, that I experienced in my own work as well. It's just it's easy for folks to come up with a diagnosis that we think is going to help struggling economies and struggling people in the economy, but the people have to vote for it, right? They have to actually buy in in large enough numbers that, that they see that in their self-interest the way that you see it in our national self-interest. So maybe unpack that just a little bit. How do you, that, this, is, this is one of those big, tricky points of friction. We talked about I, know, I feel like you just unpacked it really well. I did not want in this book to be like the egghead reporter telling you what we have to do. I did not, you know, I, I have some possibilities in there, but I do have a few things that are like dominant themes, be less racist, be less sexist, attract more of the top brain power from around the world. These, these are no brainers in my opinion, from the research on what we should do. And I've written about them before. None of them would be new concepts to people who are who have read my work, but putting them together can seem political in that way, I guess. And I assume that a lot of sources of mine who who oppose higher levels of immigration will not like this book. But I, I do think it's crucial that, that there be buy-in for these proposals. I think it doesn't really matter what I say if people don't in their hearts want a policy that they believe will be in their self-interest. And I'm not sure how how you convince people of that. But what I am sure of is that it's really easy to villainize people. It's like the classic trick in all of politics, not just American. And so to that degree, I, I did try to give people a different villain to be pissed at. Like, don't blame immigrants. Don't blame women. Don't blame black workers. Blame me. Blame me and men like me who are working at the highest levels of... of you know, I work at the, one of the most prestigious newspapers in the world in you know the center of, of power in the country for government. And I went to Stanford and I recognized myself in the group of people who have benefited from the way America is set up. And I don't actually think we have to like claw prosperity out of those people, but I do think we have to cajole those people into releasing the grip on power, dropping the, the politics of division that prevent us from pursuing these solutions. And I, I guess I'm not that hopeful about that, frankly. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I want to be optimistic too. But if you were trying to draw up a playbook for how to further decimate struggling regions of the country and diminish the overall dynamism of the country, we're doing a lot of those things very actively now. We're, we're pursuing them on a large scale in ways And that, even more so in the pandemic. I mean, we, And even more so in the pandemic. You know, we're, right. we're going to send foreign graduate students home. That's right. Foreign graduate students are enormous sources of talent, innovation, job creation in America. Peter Navarro aside, they're not issues that are, are particularly disputed among economists or, or most, most policy experts, but they are disputed in the electorate. And I think this, I continue to return to this because it's, I, I agree so strongly that an issue like immigration in particular the debate often fails because it's too much about compassion and not enough about self-interest. Self-interest is where that debate gets won or lost. And it, it just so happens that the kind of immigration policy that I, I would favor, I think you would favor, happens to be much more compassionate, but it's also much more self-interested. And it's that second part that's missing, because I, I think it's fair to stipulate that a lot of people who are restrictionists, average people who are restrictionists or skeptical about immigration, do not themselves think they're being racist or discriminatory. They think their higher priority is to the interests of their people, their country, their community. And they see those two things as being at odds. And folks like Donald Trump have obviously done a lot to stoke that feeling of zero sum between being welcoming to immigrants and being self-interested in the best possible way about the origins of your community. And I don't know how we get around that. All those indicators have moved in the wrong direction over the last few years, certainly haven't gotten easier to, to square. I think the other thing, though, also, John, is that, is that 
people don't just vote on economics and, and immigration is not, you know, we, we see in, in, the, in the research, people see immigration in some ways as an economic issue. There's this real, particularly when you frame it in terms of government handouts, like it's been a very effective tool of the populist politicians who want immigration restrictions is to cast them as mooshes on government welfare which is not true. I mean, if you look over the, the life cycle of, of immigrant generations there, that's not a fair characterization. And if you look over the research, I mean, there's tons of research that says that, it, that having more immigrants is, is very positive for the places they, they come into. But I, I mean, there's something about cultures of, of towns that people don't like changing. I mean, I, 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 in McMinnville, where I'm from, there are some people who don't like the way it has become sort of a snootier wine town in parts, and they miss the older, more blue-collar timber days. Nostalgia is a very natural... Every year I watch Kirk Gibson's 1988 Game 1 World Series home run. We all have our own ways of plugging into the past to feel more comfortable about the uncertain future that we're going into. And I do think a lot of people process immigration in some ways through that lens. And that is harder for me to... I mean, it's harder for me to see how you craft a political message around the idea that, you know, we need a a future that looks different from the past, but I promise it will make you happier than you're being made now. That is like two more beats than most successful political messages. It also, you know, we're getting a future that doesn't look like the past, whether we like it or not. And I think that's, you know, a big thing that I'm trying to say in the book is the old economy, the old ways are not coming. And Donald Trump did not succeed in reviving the industrial American economy like he promised. We could have a whole conversation about the ways that that's true. You write a lot about places. You use place and a few individual people as, as the lenses through which to tell the story of the middle class. How much of the arc that you've seen for the middle class and, and the challenges that you're describing in the book are ones of regional divergence and left-behind communities? Yeah, I have a whole chapter on left-behind communities up in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. And I, I think it's sort of left-behind rural communities are many of my favorite places in the world. And I love them for what they are, and I love them for what they were, and I believe in what they could be. But there's definitely a just a huge gap between their economic performance in this century and the performance of like superstar metro areas. As I've written a bunch about, and as you well know from, from the research that you all do, I just think it's, it is a defining feature of the post. We can't even say post-recession anymore because it's like, oh, which, which, which once-in-a-lifetime recession are you talking about, Jim? But it, it is a defining feature of that economy that has come since then is this divergence. And I think, again, though, I see them as enormous areas of potential, that if you could get the kinds of growth and performance, again, that those areas once generated for the country, you, you could unlock enormous amounts of, of wealth for people simply by reallocating talented people to less expensive areas where they can more quickly build wealth from a less expensive stocks. You know, I don't want to get too into the weeds of housing policy, but there are real impediments to getting ahead, even in the places that are getting ahead. And spreading prosperity more would, would help alleviate a lot of that. You, you take aim at politicians who make a lot of false promises and, and try to feed electorates who are dealing with a lot of these challenges with false hope. I think a lot of people, I know from, from my own work, a lot of people would say that the idea that we can revive a lot of these struggling areas itself is a form of false hope and, and false promises, and that there's a really strong empirical case for reallocating whatever resources you might put in trying to reviving some of those places into much more productive, high-opportunity areas. I guess the question is, what's so wrong about letting places die once they've outlived their usefulness? Why shouldn't we just let that happen? Well, you strand a lot of infrastructure. I mean, you invested in those places with roads and pipes and phone lines. And that seems wasteful to me to, to strand that. You strand a lot of human capital because with respect to a lot of AEI scholars who like the idea of moving people to opportunity, a lot of people won't. I mean, they, they grew up in their town and they don't want to leave. My former Vox colleague, Alvin Chang, had this great piece about those who stay and those who leave and the differences in towns of the people who go off to seek their fortune and those who, who just want to stay and, and how very similar people can have very different outcomes just because of the difference in their preferences there. But those preferences are real and they're not, again, entirely economically driven. If you are just a person who wants to stay around your family or who, you know, wants your 
mother and father to be able to care for your kids while you work and you have that intergenerational community, there are good reasons to stay in a dying town. And you strand those people. I guess eventually over time, in the long run, all of those things die out and, and you, you've reallocated. But then, then I think you, you are going to start to get into to real questions of, of resource scarcity and water in lots of these places. I mean, I'm from the West, so we think a lot about water. Look, I love San Francisco. It's a wonderful place. And you are never going to be able to get San Francisco to allow the sort of construction that is needed to get everyone who should or, or could be in a optimal level San Francisco for economic purposes actually living there affordably. So I think there's a good reason not to let those places die. Do you think the pandemic changes any of this in terms of how people think about communities they might not otherwise thought of as a good place to live and raise a family? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's going to be really interesting. I, I know that you know, Adam Ozemek at Upwork has this really interesting paper on remote work possibilities. And you can see it. I think anyone who lives in a Brooklyn apartment right now or a Brooklyn brownstone where you have one bedroom and it costs you more than a million dollars can daydream about buying a farmhouse in Vermont or, you know, a large house in Cleveland or whatever. Like I... I I know what I paid for my house in Virginia, and I know what I paid for my house in Ohio. And I think of how many houses in Ohio I could get just from selling the house in Virginia. And there's some real arbitrage opportunity there, but you need sort of a, a critical mass arbitrage. And I think that's the other thing that's really interesting. I thought about this a lot. Back when I was at the Post, I spent, and I read about it a tiny bit in the book, some time in this town called Decaturville in Tennessee, which is like they were in a Bill Clinton commercial about NAFTA in the 92 campaign. And I went back to see how they fared and, you know, not surprisingly, not very well. And it's a beautiful little town. The people were charming and friendly to me. I, you know, you can get like 7,000 calories at breakfast, no problem at the diner. And it was cheap. Everything was cheap. But you walked around and I thought, you know, if I, if I were a young person, what job is here for me? And what other young people are here from me? Who, who do you date? Who, do you, who are you friends with? Who do you hang out with at the bar? And I think that that is, in some ways, a culture clash uh, with, with some of these, these towns that, you know, they don't, they don't want to be... Decaturville doesn't want to be Knoxville. But there's got to be a happy middle. And there are certainly towns across the country that are finding that, that are growing and thriving because they have sort of embraced a mix of bringing in younger more educated families, creating, getting, getting employers that will put them to work, and then putting the sign out saying, hey, we've got this great housing stock that it's going to be a lot cheaper for you. Maybe to close, you can tell us what, what was one favorite moment or favorite thing that came out of writing this book? What's your favorite part of the experience? You know, truthfully, the very best thing that came out of this book for me was, a, was meeting Ed Green and, and getting to spend time in his family and, and in his world. You know, personally, I think that it it just got me thinking a lot about really deep questions about, and I sort of, I don't want to give the ending of the book away, but I, I thought a lot about sort of like what we, what values we pass on to our kids. And, and I had this moment the other day where we were having a socially distanced gathering with some friends we hadn't seen in a long time. And they were asking about the book and I had to walk away for a second for a work call. And I came back and my 14, almost 14 year old now was giving the spiel of the book, you know, he's saying, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's, and it's about how if we invest in women and in black Americans and in, we really can make it better for everybody. And he, I don't want to accuse him of being uncool and actually believing what his dad says, but that was a neat moment for me in sort of thinking about, yeah, th this is how I, I want, I feel very blessed to have been, have my parents pass on values of compassion and inquiry and just wanting to figure out how to try to solve problems for people and tell their stories. And my son is a minor character in the book. He's with me on a few of the boarding trips. And seeing him sort of understand just intuitively what I'm talking about, maybe even better than I do, the potential in people around him, the other kids around him, and explain it to people. That's been the best part. That's great stuff. When's the book out? August 11th, but you can pre-order it now. JimTankersley.com, my website. 
that my wife built for me because she's spectacular. <laughs> if you just go there, you can buy it from any number of reputable bookstores and it will be shipped to you the day that it drops. Great, Jim, congratulations. It's a great book. It's a wonderful experience getting to read it. And thanks for having this conversation. John, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for this week's episode of The Deep Dive. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Special thanks again to Jim Tankersley for being my guest today. You can follow him on Twitter at Jim Tankersley. His book, The Riches of This Land, comes out August 11th and is available for pre-order now. As a reminder, you can find me on Twitter at DC. Drop me a line and let me know what you thought of today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, be well, and thanks again for listening.